We are recording, and this is the Filmography Podcast. I'm your co-host, Reese Crothers, and I'm here with, as always, with my friend and co-host, Bjorn Olsen. Say hi, Bjorn. Hey, everybody. Welcome uh, once again to the Filmography, and this is episode number 12. So we are, for those of you who are listening for the first time, we are taking a chronological deep dive into the films of Francis Ford Coppola, and you're invited to watch along with us as we watch uh, each next film and discuss in detail. And so now we are up to 1988 for Tucker, The Man in His Dream. And uh, we're also going to take a look at the Francis Ford Coppola segment, uh, Life Without Zoe from 1989's New York Stories. And we'll do a, a slight break from tradition and we'll take a look at the short film first, um, just because it's a short film and uh, we'll have less to say about it. But um, 1989's New York Stories one of three short films from three New York directors. Uh, although I, I wouldn't say Coppola is a New York director. I'd say Coppola is more California, but um, The Godfather is so New York. Yeah, for sure. Um, but you've got Francis Ford Coppola making uh, Life Without Zoe. You've got Woody Allen with Oedipus Rex and Martin Scorsese with Life Lessons. So mm-hmm. 1989, New York Stories, Life Without Zoe. Did you you watch the Did you watch New York Stories as a film, or did you watch just the segment? Yeah, I, I rewatched it. I'd seen it um, before, and I rewatched. It's been a long time since I'd I'd seen it, and um, I definitely wanted to. I mean, it, you know, I was just I was going to watch Life Without Zoe anyways, so I might as well watch the whole thing and get the full experience. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, it, interesting like Life Without Zoe. Um, is I would say closer in feeling and style to Tucker than it is to the other two segments. I mean, it really this is this movie really kind of shows how uh, how uh, like these directors each have very particular kind of style, even when they're. I mean, I don't I don't think they were they were working in collaboration at all but they're, they're no, that's, that's know, they're something i wondered is like where they developed intent they were developed probably in silos you know without mm-hmm. without much uh interference from the other directors that i I, mm-hmm. I can't see how life lessons would have inspired <laughs> uh anything to do with life without zoe for example um yeah for sure i think they were developed on their own yeah and, and i'm curious um, to know like where they like where was the concept of New York stories born first and then they went off and tried to come up with something or were there, you know, were they independently sort of developed and they just had these short films. It's I'd be really curious to know, but there's no commentary on the New York, New York stories, uh, either digital or on DVD. Did you watch it? Did you yeah, watch no. the DVD or what, what did you watch? Uh, I watched it on Blu-ray, oh, on Blu-ray. and, uh, there's, 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 uh, it's a it's a it's a key Lorber, Lorber Blu-ray, and there are good special features, but there are zero special features on this movie. Um, you get some unrelated trailers, huh. um, uh, but uh, yeah, no no special features whatsoever. So I I assume that uh, Woody Allen's producers Rollins and Joffe. Um, because they are credited as producers of the whole thing. Mm. So my start so maybe them. it was, yeah, it was their idea. Like let's maybe Woody had like half of an idea for a movie <laughs> and boy, boy, oh boy, is it ever half of an idea. Yeah. Um, but, 
maybe they had that and we can't really make a feature out of this, but, um, you know, wants to make a movie. So let's see if we can get some other uh, talent involved. And I, I, we talked about this sort of briefly, um, not during the last episode, but kind of in the aftermath about how it's, these three directors are kind of, they're all in the wilderness in a yeah. way. Like Scorsese is, is they're all seventies directors, and, you know, who faltered yeah. in the eighties. Yeah. Scorsese is coming off the last temptation of Christ, which is like an unimpeachable, um, you know, artistic, uh, work, but extremely controversial, obviously, yeah. if, you know, um, and commercially didn't do anything for him, obviously. I mean, it's, and yes. And like, um, Not like Passion of the Christ or something, I, I, which is a global like juggernaut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but like you know, uh, Scorsese, who says you know that he's a Latin Catholic, but still believes in, in a lot of the tenets of Catholicism, making a movie about Christ and uh, a lot of um, religious uh, uh, people, um, you know, just losing their minds over it. You know, well received critically, but like a very, very controversial film. And I think he probably, you know, had a, a tough time um, getting through that. Um, and, and, and following after also, not such great hits with uh, King of Comedy and After Hours and like his whole, yeah, and, obviously Raging Bulls 1980, I, but it's really a 70s picture. Yeah. Yeah. And Color of Money as well. Color of Money, there yeah. Although I love like, that. I love Color of Money. I'm like one of the few Yeah, Color of Money who, is... It, is, is, is fantastic and I don't think anybody really sees it as like a, a, a misfire but you know it's also like he's he's doing a, a sequel so it's, to an know, old how, movie how much of yeah exactly so it's hard to say how much of you know his heart was in it but who knows and then Willie Allen you know he's he's like as prolific as as ever in this period but, uh, you well, know, he would have just, did he just come sisters. off of, um, crimes and misdemeanors? Isn't that 88? So this is just before crimes and misdemeanors. Right. Um, you would have, you would have started crimes and misdemeanors after Oedipus Rex, but, okay. but movies before not, not huge movies like September radio days. Um, he hadn't made an so all, all out comedy right for years. Exactly. Yeah. That too. Like, um, this, I mean, this really kind of prefigures where he would go in the 90s, for sure. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, like three great directors, but also kind of, and we don't have to explain, like, where Coppola is at, because we've been talking about it, yeah. but they're, they're all kind of like... Um, well, especially you know, after Gardens of Stone, which was, I think, such a muted release. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely, yeah. And then and then Tucker, which we, we're going to reverse engineer, and we'll get into Tucker later. But I don't think Tucker was a big hit, um, as far as I so can just remember. Just like a, a transitional period. Yeah. yeah. So it makes sense. So you got, but you got these three great filmmakers who are kind of associated with the same time period, the '70s. You know, who they're all sort of taking turns getting nominated for Oscars, and then you've got. I think it's interesting the 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 order of the films because it kind of Life Lessons mm-hmm. is the best of the three. And Life Lessons, obviously, the story of a middle-aged painter and his sort of toxic relationship with his employee-slash-girlfriend, Rosanna Arquette, Nick Nolte's mm-hmm. the artist. Um, and it's just this sort of slice of life with these two people as the relationship is coming apart. Um, and then yeah. Life Without Zoe is the story of a 12-year-old girl 
uh, Zoe, who's living in the uh, Sherry Netherland Hotel and um, her sort of mm-hmm. misadventures um, with other 12-year-olds and her parents, you know, Talia Shire as the mother and Giancarlo Giannini as the father um, and her butler, Don Novello. Don Novello's great. I mean, he's I always love when he shows up. Um, and uh, and then Oedipus Rex is the story of uh, 50-year-old uh, Woody Allen whose mother is like basically uh, smothering him until he takes her to a magic mm-hmm. show where she is um, disappeared. And uh, a brief respite from his mother, she, he, he, he's in love with his girlfriend, everything's going great, and then his mother appears over the New York skyline telling strangers all about his life and making his life a miser- yeah. misery. Um, which is a funny, funny idea. Uh, less funny in its, um, in its, uh, you know, when you're actually watching it. But um, did you know yeah. that in Europe, I think the order of the films was was uh, reversed. So they went, it went Coppola's first, then Woody Allen's, then um, then ended with Life Lessons, which I think would change. Well, that's interesting. That would have a big effect, I think, on on how you enjoy the movie. Because I think if if we had just looked at Life Without Zoe by itself. Um, I think mm-hmm. we could look at it the same way we looked at like Rip Van Winkle and kind of forgive some of the shortcomings because they're inherent mm-hmm. in the project. I mean, a story about a 12 year old girl, I've never been a 12 year old girl and, uh, <laughs> I have a hard time relating to that. Um, but, um, you know, in the context of the movie, I think watching it in the North American order, it's really hurt by the fact that it comes right after life lessons, which is a very grown up adult story. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden it yeah. goes into this kind of childish, low stakes kind of misadventure um, that mm-hmm. I think is it, by itself is a, is a charming little short, but but compared to Life Lessons, it really it really doesn't doesn't hold out because in Life Lessons, Scorsese's firing on all cylinders. You can see all the mm-hmm. stuff that he was doing in After Hours only being but a much more mature, haunted thing. And Nick Nolte is on fire, just like every time you look into his eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, Plus, you got Steve Buscemi in a small part. I mean, it's like Roseanne Arquette is fantastic in it. Um, Life Lessons got a script by Richard Price also. So it's the only one that has, I think, a really great script um, of the three. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Life Without Zoe is co-written by Sophia. I don't know how old she would have been at that time. But it's like, it doesn't show the promise of, of a Lost in Translation, you know, to be kind. Mm-hmm. Um so I think, what did you think about well, I, I watching think, it in the context of the movie? Did 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 life lessons? I mean, I don't know what you thought of life lessons first of all, but did one affect the I, other? I, yeah, I I think Sofia Coppola was. Uh, they were saying she was seventeen when when she wrote it. Mm. So, um, uh, like she was born in in nineteen seventy. So I guess she 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 maybe it was just something that was kicking around. Yeah, but um, I mean, I think you're right. Like about the. Um, you know, the European release, the way that they are, the way that it would have been structured with, um, I mean, I, you know, I think the best way to do it would be to have uh, Oedipus Rex go, go first, and then you get, um, you know, a nice palate cleanse in the middle of with Life Without Zoe and, and, and Life Lessons, the serious one at, at, the, yeah. at the end. When I first saw this movie, um, you know, Oedipus, Rex, it was what it was. I, I thought it was funny. I liked the, I liked the conceit of it. Um, I, you know, it's it's just like it's just a Woody Allen comedy. Uh, second time around, um, you know, it, it's like you see it with more grown up eyes. Yeah, and it it is funny. Mae Questel is really funny She's in good. it. 
um, as, the mother. As, his, as his mother. Um, but it's like when he goes to visit the psychic Julie Kavner and you realize like, oh, this is just another movie where Woody Allen justifies, uh, you know, cheating on your partner. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like his classic thing. And it's everything just leads up to this. Uh, you know his heart wants what it wants kind of theory and and like it's just, you just see it so often it magically it resolves it. itself like it magically yes it feels like he just whipped it off like you know it was a first draft kind of uh, idea he had last night mm-hmm. um life lessons the first time i saw this movie life lessons kind of rubbed me the wrong way really um yeah, I can't remember exactly why, but I think it, it, it's probably like I just didn't quite understand the relationships in the way that I do more so as an adult. And I love that this is kind of Corsetti um, uh, exploring, like pining for somebody when they're in the same physical space as you. Yeah, you all the shots of him staring up at the window. Yeah, exactly. And just like even when they're in the same room together and they're interacting with each other and they're still kind of a couple in in a way and just talking with each other. But he's like, his affection for her is completely different now. And, and, and it's just not something that you see that much. Um, so, you know, I liked, uh, I like the painting scenes are fantastic. Like watching him paint is exciting. Painting scenes are great. Yeah. Like really just really looks like, you know, Nolte's actually, yeah, like he's painting it himself. Just the physical act of it, but like the creative, you know, um, compulsion of it, it looks very real. It looks like he's coming up with, with the paintings, and obviously there was, you know, uh, a lot of thought put into that. And how um, how his conflict in his life fuels his painting. Like he really, mm-hmm. he returns to the canvas with gusto, you know, every time he gets sort of challenged or rebuffed or confronted in uh in his interpersonal relationships which i think yeah. is great you know and then whenever they do like a little a, an insert shot of like some detail in the painting and you know where it comes from you know yeah. a heart with a knife in it or whatever it was or like a woman's face yeah and, you know it's like the anguish yeah. his 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 internal anguish like projected onto the canvas watching the canvas emerge it's like one of the it's even though i don't i don't know who the artist was who did the actual painting but it almost reminds me of you know that film painter's painting when you just get to watch mm-hmm. filmmakers doing, or Clouseau's film, the mystery of Picasso, watching Picasso, mm-hmm. watching him, just yeah, you know, the quality of his line um, is so mm-hmm. kind of fascinating to watch. And you're watching, or Pollock has got a great sequence where where he comes up with the drip dry technique, and or the, the I don't know if that's what it's called, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, so watching that yeah. moment of invention, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, the first time I watched. New York stories. My favorite segment was Life Without Zoe. Wow. And um, I just thought it was so charming. I thought it was just like this, you know, really uh, clever, incisive look into the world of a child. And it's like, um, I just I just found it like this um, kind of unconventional way of looking at how children interact. Because huh. they're, you know, if you see like children who are like way more articulate than actual children are. And that's such a cliche in, in Hollywood writing. And that exists here. And it's like, but it's some strange reason because of, of just the, you know, the, the fact that it's set partially in a hotel and partially like 
at this ridiculous private school and yeah. and and then also in this estate where they the party sequence takes place at the end um and it's like it's just it's so charming i think i like it the best out of the three watching it again I, you know it's like it's definitely shapeless it's definitely like um you know you see like the naivete of, of that is coming from you know sofia coppola as a younger person, but that's it's charm in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it's very it's like it's this, you know, it, it has it takes so many cues from from children's literature, like Eloise, the girl who lives in the hotel, and like Encyclopedia Brown solving a mystery, and huh. you know the exoticism that is explored in children. I, I like the the uh, the lead performance, um, the, lead, the the young lead actress who I you know obviously. I think Sofia Coppola, she modeled a lot of this screenplay on her life her, yeah. you know, her traveling father and her, you know, um, who knows what her relationship with her mother was like, but you can obviously see a lot. It's her father and her grandfather, you know, um, maybe um, having Giancarlo Giannini's character uh, really resemble Carmine Coppola a lot is more of a, a Francis idea than a Sofia idea. Who knows? But because yeah, they wrote it together, it so there might be elements of both yeah. of those kind of commingling. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. like I, you know, life lessons. It, it is like it is a Scorsese picture, and I love his, you know, intimate camera um, and his inventive. It's a ferocious camera. I mean, the camera is, is constantly that, like zooming in on people yeah. and like getting in someone's face and yeah. like you know get, going for those like little details. I mean, I, I I think for me, life lessons is is like Scorsese. I mean, it's it's so close to Goodfellas. It's like he, I can see, mm-hmm. I can see the yeah the the creative impulse bubbling up in him because there's like so many things he's doing with the camera that he doesn't need to do. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like he could have gotten away with doing less, but only he could do what he did. And all, like I feel yeah. like only Scorsese could have made life lessons. And then I love that it's a Richard Price script because I, you know, Richard Price is one of my favorite writers, and it's very much a, mm-hmm. like it like a Richard Price short story, like. It, the way that the people talk to each other and um, the obsessiveness of the main character, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then I also just love Nick Nolte. Like I love, I love stories about painters. I love Nick Nolte. I love, there's so, so much about life lessons that I love. I love the music. The music is driving this short. Um, it feels to yeah. me like as emotionally satisfying as a lot of feature films, you know, and that's the thing that I think, mm-hmm. whereas when I watch life without Zoe, I, 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 it feels very much like, short film like a student film in some ways which i don't mean in a pejorative way it's it's mm-hmm. like it has that sense of playfulness and of discovery and of 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 you know innocence i guess that it's coming because it's from a teenager in some ways but like the yeah. and the 12 year olds the thing i think i think you're touching on that was that the kids seem like kids they really yeah. the way they talk to each other they they talk like kids even though they're sophisticated yeah. kids. Um, I yeah, just, and, 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 you know, when they get into trouble, they kind of, like, it's minor trouble, but they kind of react to the way that kids do, in a way, when they get into trouble. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's, like, Coppola, um, you know, it, it, it does feel student filmy. I think you're right about that. And if any of these three could be developed into a full feature, it's Life Lessons, for sure. But 
Um, no, no uh, student filmmaker is getting Vitor Storaro to uh, no, no. Uh, it, help shoot their picture. And that's the other thing about life is without Zoe is it's beautiful. It looks yeah, it really amazing. Is. It looks it looks better than Tucker even. <laughs> yeah, it's gorgeous. I mean, he's I think him and Storaro are like a really perfect co- uh, combination. Because Storaro Absolutely. just paints with color and light. Yeah. And and then Coppola yeah. is such a warm filmmaker that it, it really yeah. the color palettes really complement the quality of the material. Yeah. I mean, Storaro is the perfect cinema movie. It's a visual uh, visual movie first. The story is just, you know, it is what it is. It's whatever. Um, it's, I mean, it's all about the visuals with it. The thing is, though, I feel like the story... It, it, as a fairy tale or whatever, it's like, it feels like it has two parts and it's missing the third part. There's, there's something about it that, that mm-hmm. to me, like from a story standpoint, there's, there's something missing. Um, I don't know quite what yeah. it is, but the, but the pieces work. Like I really love the, the robbery at the hotel and Coppola seems to be having yeah. fun with the camera kind of canted and um, Chris, isn't it? Chris yeah. Elliott is one of the, Chris Elliott is in it. Yeah. Chris Elliott's like the gunman who's like pointing the gun at the yeah. kid. Um, yeah. Which, you know, it's like a pretty traumatic thing for a 12 year old girl. Um, but I, I did love that sequence and I, I love that idea of like the, the, you know, they drop something that was in her dad's safe that like now he thinks he's lost. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so the story, yeah. like the story starts to, I think kind of go somewhere there. And then you find out that it, the, the jewel that she found was the tear of Shiraz, the diamond earring given mm-hmm. to her father by, you know, some beautiful queen because his, he's a flute, flutist, flautist. And his yeah. music is so beautiful that, you know, it makes women yeah. fall in love with him. Uh, I mean, all yeah. that stuff is great. Like, you know. yeah, I love that touch. It's, it's, again, it's like Coppola with his interesting relationship with his father, like half afraid of him and half worshiping him. And he writes as this father character is music makes women fall in love with them. It's, <laughs> it's great. It's great. And Carmine's doing yeah. the music with uh, kid Creole. Yeah. I think. Right. Yeah. Um, which is and very so New like York I, in the like 80s. The, yeah. The party sequences were a lot of fun. And, you know, um, I think you're right. Like um, perhaps a more experienced, more seasoned writer would have done something more with that heist, the hotel heist. And not, I, you know, not remembering the exact plot detail, but I thought there was going to be something, you know, some sort of reveal at the end. Yeah, but it, it, in some ways, I think, you know, the the fact that it's the fact that it's sort of an imperfect script. I mean, but it's a child's yeah. idea of a story, like so. Maybe exactly. maybe that makes up for it in some ways. But I think it's just I think yeah. it's just a jarring transition from this super adult, like sophisticated modern drama to yeah. a really, like you say, charming uh, children's story. I f- I just think that it's a it's a jarring just juxtaposition, and I feel like I feel like maybe if to, to, I don't know what you could either start with life without Zoe or you could start with Oedipus Rex, but either way, I just feel mm-hmm. like starting with life lessons uh, creates a creates an expectation. I think of a certain kind of yeah. story that that you're really surprised when it switches and becomes for kids. It's very hard, I think, to for any anthology movie when it's always like how do the stories fit together? The stories by themselves mm-hmm. may be like satisfying. You know, and again, I think if I watched Life Without Zoe, like the way when we watched Rip Van Winkle, you know, I was watching it 
not comparing it to like a film or any other films and just taking it for what it was a piece of children's theater. And I think I enjoyed mm-hmm. watching Rip Van Winkle more, even though I think life without Zoe is better. You know what I mean? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, because, because I couldn't remove the context of watching it with, within, you know, the setup of New York stories without life lessons. And I think I, obviously I, Sure. I think I liked life lessons more than you because to me, I, I put it high up on Scorsese's achievements. It's like, I think it's so mm-hmm. hard to make like a 40 minute movie that works. Um, that that's totally satisfying emotionally. Um, but I think it has a brilliant yeah. kind of construction. Like when he meets like, you know, obviously, especially looking at it through like a me too lens or something. That's like, it's, it's just mm-hmm. short of like abuse, right? Like it's toxic and it's, <laughs> It's it's yeah. uh, manipulative and it's all these things, but it like he doesn't force her to do anything. Um, so no, that exactly you're exactly right. Like it is, you know, uh, there there is it's problematic in that it is a power dynamic. Yeah, that is because she is his He's employee, and they're also yeah, and they're also having a relationship. But you're you're up, and she has you know the agency in in, in this picture. She's you know, she is the one who determines where things go between the two of them. Yeah, she's obviously she's obviously like the boss. You know, except that he's playing he he's her he is her boss, but she's in charge of yeah. of what happens, yeah. and and she has the power over him. But he's like driving her insane. You know, it's hard not to feel for her character in it, even though she kind of plays with him. Um, you mm-hmm. know, and and it's not clear at the beginning whether they're a couple, and she is just like. Um, like stepped out on him to go off with Steve Buscemi for the weekend or if they are like, if, if, if they're just employer employee at that point, it's like, it's not clear, but, but she's the one who's making the choices, whether she chooses to leave, chooses to return, you know, but he badgers the hell out of her. But then at the end, like when he, when, when she leaves him, you see that like, she doesn't really matter to him at all. Once he, once she's going to go, he pays her no attention. And it's really just about, it's such a selfish love. Like it's just about him. And he just yeah. needs to fill that yeah. void. And then as soon as he meets in the next pretty young girl who looks up to Lionel Dobby, his character, um, he's he's yeah. he's already found the next one right away to replace her. It's a very yeah. cynical kind of uh, depiction of a relationship. But but it, because it's not a it's not a typical romance because it's not a they live happily ever after story. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's like a fascinating one because there aren't that many stories like it, especially on film. No, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean. Yeah, like I agree with everything that you're saying for sure. I, I think maybe my, um, maybe my the the reason why I'm I'm more pro life without Zoe is because it's just been so unfairly maligned. I think over yeah, the years, like nobody really really seems to like it that much. And um, you know, I just Roger Ebert so said taken with it. Roger Ebert said the New York Stories was one good film, one bad film, and one disappointing film. And the bad film yeah. was Life Without Zoe. So yeah, you're right. It's it, it people people really. It's the caveat. It's like New York Stories is good, even though the Coppola one sucks, and it definitely doesn't suck. Yeah, you know, if you can just look at no, it. No, I don't see how. Yeah, I, I don't see like it's I because I see it in reviews and just looking at reviews of this movie, I just don't. I mean, there's so much like candy colored fluff out there that people lose their minds over, and this is so much better than than that. Um, but I don't know. <laughs> I think it's just that it's hard to take it on its own terms. You know, if it was just something that you saw by itself, yeah, you'd have a different relationship yeah. to it, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that it's like, 
the stakes are really kind of low in it and it's like you know it's just it's not a it's not a uh overly um constructed piece like it has it has that loose kind of improvisational sort of feeling to it um totally you know which is part of the charm but i think it just it's just it's just when it's judged by life lessons i think it hurts it's like four rooms or something right like the the robert rodriguez mm-hmm. episode of four rooms is so much better than the others it's like it's really hard to sit no. through the house you don't think so <laughs> no no, Man from Hollywood is the best by far, and all the other episodes are bad. Oh, man, I like the Rodriguez one the best. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really like him that much as a filmmaker. I guess that's probably part of it. It's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> I, I love the Man from Hollywood. I think it's so funny, but I don't like any of the other episodes. See, I thought funny. Man from Hollywood I mean, was, like, like, was, was overwritten. You know, it was like the first <laughs> chink in Tarantino's army. I mean, yeah. Of course, it's Tarantino, like we expect. But, but you're—I mean, you're right. Like we, you know, that is a commonality to. I think part of the reason why these three directors made this picture is because they were influenced. They they wanted to sort of feel like they had made their mark in the same way that you know Fellini and, and Rosalini and um, whoever else I can't remember off the top of my head made Spirits of the Dead and, yeah. and Love at Twenty directors like that they obviously you know massive influence on on them and so they're saying like this is this is our project where we we get to do this but those movies you know they're extremely uneven as well so even you know the the great the all-time great they can't quite uh figure it out when it comes to the anthology film well i think just anthology films are hard period because every time you see a movie that you love you want to stay in the world of the movie and anthologies totally. are constantly yanking you out of the world you were just in and throwing you into another one when maybe you're not ready for it yet. And yeah. it's like, you know, going to film school and being part of uh, short film showcases. It's like, you always worry, yeah. well, well, what's being shown first and what's being shown after, yeah. you know, and like, is it, yeah. are they going to play together? And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a hodgepodge and it's a mixed bag. And, you know, that's why anthology films, even when they're made by the same filmmaker. I mean, look at French Dispatch. I don't know if you watched that or not, the Wes Anderson. But mm-hmm. even there, you've got yeah. an anthology of stories, and some of them are going to stick out, and some of them are going to be better than others. And when you've watched For one sure. that you really liked, and the next one's kind of middling, uh, it's it's overly frustrating. It's un it's unfair even on the on the film because the expectations carried over from one film to the next are kind of unfair. Yeah. Um, but I this may be a good spot like- to 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 jump back now and, and, and look at Tucker. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. Know? I was just, I was just going to say like to, to cap it off, even something like coffee and cigarettes, which is, Oh yeah, of course. Uh, movies made at different times, but it's like, you know, Jarmusch, he has such a distinctive style and those, all the coffee and cigarette segments are basically covering the same ground, yeah. but there are ones that stick out better than. Yeah, exactly. There's just going to the be idea of the anthology films. Um, I hope I would like to see more of them to be honest with you, but, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Well, for every disappointment, there's a surprise. I think that's, that's the thing. Like you, you get a mixed bag, but you get jewels in there, you know, and maybe for you, the jewel was life without Zoe. And for me, the jewel, the jewel was life lessons, but that's the kind of the cool thing about it is that you can get different audiences watching them and everyone's going to take away something different. Some people are going to like different ones. Like even in coffee and cigarettes, Mm -hmm. I think like, you know, depending on, you know, what you think of the Wu-Tang, you know, like for me, I love, I love the, the, the segment with 
Bill Murray and, and Riza and Jizza. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you know, but, but someone else maybe isn't, you know, didn't like that so much, but they're big Tom Waits fans and they're going to love the Tom Waits and Iggy yeah. pop one, which is also one of my favorite. Yeah. You know, it's like, or even any of the anthology films that Jarmusch did, they're, they're mixed bags like uh night on earth and, mm-hmm. yeah. um, Absolutely. and, uh, mystery train. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, but it, I think it would probably have been a good exercise coming off of like the, Tucker is the end of, well, I guess we could debate whether Godfather is the end of it or not, but Godfather three, mm-hmm. I mean, but, but Tucker's the last film Tucker and life without Zoe are the last films he makes in the eighties. And we've been on that yeah. run now where we've been talking about how he has to make a film a year, um, just to keep the lights on and keep the house, <laughs> you know? Um, so mm-hmm. Tucker would seem to be, uh, an attempt at, you know, a director for hire movie, except as we learn, in the commentary and in the special features and um, whatnot that, that it's actually a dream project. And it was something that he had been planning to do with American Zoe trope right from the beginning. And, and now all actuality, the, the, the whole exercise of one from the heart was a trial run for ideas and concepts that he wanted to bring to Tucker. Um, so mm-hmm. then obviously that fell through 10 years go by and he comes back and he, with the help of George Lucas, this time producing kind of flipping the roles from when Coppola produced, um, American graffiti. Um, he gets to return and make Tucker. So it's a, it's actually like a personal film. Um, but it also fits into the, you know, I need to make a movie. So it's, uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting, uh, uh, place to sort of ask ourselves, where does it fit in with the rest of the Coppola films? You know, because stylistically it's a little Mm -hmm. different, you know, so we're really we're coming off of yeah. Gardens of Stone, right? So, how did you yeah. feel? What was your what was your just your general sort of impression? Well, I mean, uh, Tucker, I I had seen before, and this is this was another one that I watched when I was a kid. I'm pretty sure that I watched this not in theaters, but on on uh, when it was on new video, on tape uh, when it, when it came out, and it you know this is, it makes sense because. Um, not with Gardens of Stone, but with definitely with Peggy Sue Got Married and with uh, Rumblefish and Outsiders and, and this movie, Coppola is making movies um, for a broader audience. He's not making um, movies geared for adults. Um, more, more often than not, these are movies that, these are it's, it's not a family movie per se, but it's definitely a movie that can be enjoyed by, uh, like this, movie like more than anything i think that he's done before really has that sort of like uh you know 1950s and 60s kind of um you know show biography kind of feel to it yeah um but also you know a story about about a real person um and you know it's interesting that he is he's he's working with you know you see some of uh, the Coppola classics coming back, like Freddie Forrest is in is in here, and yep. uh, Joan Allen gets the back you know the, the uh, yeah uh, as, as as the female lead, and um, but you know it's a nice uh, ensemble picture, and but it really is the story of of one one man, one sort of maverick, and of course. Uh, you know the, the the general line of of how this movie has been perceived and received is that this is Coppola telling his own story, but who um, uh, you know all of these 
wonderful progressive ideas and was was basically uh, you know completely uh, conspired against by forces larger than he is. And he he talks yeah, about and that's that the story. I mean, it's good to it's good to yeah. you know the the story of Tucker is the story of a you know the man in the dream. the The man has a dream mm-hmm. to build the newest car, the next car, the car of the future. Mm-hmm. And wants yeah. to wants to go up against the big three in Detroit uh, automobile manufacturers, and the idea being that the the man with the best idea is supposed to win in America. And yeah. Tucker finds yeah. that he has the best idea, maybe, but uh, he's thwarted yeah. at every turn by big business and by the big three and by the senators who are in the pockets of the big three. And and that and the and the movie really is just testing the American dream. The idea being that you know it's supposed to be a meritocracy, and the person, the best man, wins. Um, and whether or not you know, because it it becomes in the later half like a almost like a courtroom drama, um, as like mm-hmm. you know he's punished for trying to have the best idea. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely, it feels like the parallels between Tucker and Coppola are so pronounced that you know because coppola had his dream and his dream was zoetrope and and mm-hmm. you know and it died and he had to suffer for it but he did he did bring it to reality he did have that studio you know even if only if it was for one one from the heart um yeah but uh but 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 you're right also in that it's a great ensemble piece um but it is the story of tucker and it really rests i think the what you think of the movie rests kind of on what you think of Jeff Bridges performance, you know, at the center of it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is an interesting choice. I think, um, Coppola always thinking outside the box and Jeff Bridges, you know, we haven't really seen him as the clean cut family man, um, in movies. I mean, he is kind of aging into that role, but I mean, in like 1980s, Jeff Bridges, it's, you know, he's kind of like uh, the good guy gone bad or the bad guy who is actually a good guy. And, and, um, but, you know, doing like a lot of um, suspense and that sort of thing. And, you know, Jagged uh, or, Edge. or, uh, Morning yeah, after. something like Jagged Edge or like a, a gritty Neonor, like um, 8 Million Ways to Die. Yep. Um, and, and and so this is kind of like a new turn for Jeff Bridges. And I said before, like Jeff Bridges has never given a bad performance. No. And like, there's something about his. It always seems. It always seems uh, from the heart. He 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 has a sort of everyman quality to him, but also like he's an outsider, and and it's it's like. It's amazing that he Coppola. has that everyman quality because he's so yeah. handsome. He's just so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Like uh-huh. every now and then it's distracting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like he's just, you know, he just that sort of, he has that classic Jeff Bridges smile where he yeah. just smiles wide, but he doesn't show his teeth or anything like that. So it doesn't feel like he's forcing his smile. Like, yeah. I mean, he comes from Chilbid's family. So I guess that's part of it as well. But I mean, he, like he, he was acting as a child and, uh, you know, like it was, was kind of made to do this. So I think, you know, because that's what Tucker really represents for Coppola and what he wants Tucker to represent to us as this hardworking, 
decent everyman who is also like one of the way like because he's so brilliant and like so very clever casting to begin with 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 jeff bridges and, and the fact that he's a uh, dreamer know, casting from, from like, top to bottom in this movie is, is oh yeah it's well done like martin landau you see uh young christian slater who yep. doesn't get a, a lot to do yeah but he martin looks cool landau, of course who was academy award nominated is terrific was yeah. he nominated yeah. for this <laughs> yeah exactly yeah Marlon, though, yeah, Academy Award nominated. He's so um, good. He's so good in it. And, uh, I mean, Martin Lando, um, also, you know, sort of a really interesting, uh, I, I believe he's sort of based on, on a real person. Like, I, everybody in this movie. They're real people, but some are. Lando is like, yeah. he's like a composite, I think. A composite, yeah. Yeah. But. Uh, Gives it a lot of heart. You know, like. Absolutely, yeah, and um, also like uh, it's not something that is discussed at length in this movie, but you know his brief encounter with uh, Lloyd Bridges as the senator, where he spelled out his name, yeah. um, talks about like anti-Semitism in America and coming, you know, coming after the tragedy of, of World War Two. Uh, this is like a, a very real thing because a lot of people who were Jewish were associated with communism and, um, you know, like, uh, just sort of one of those little things that Coppola puts, puts in here. Yeah. It's, it has a, in some ways, like the way, you know, we talked about gardens of stone is a Vietnam movie without any Vietnam and mm-hmm. world war two, uh, hangs over this movie without really, without any battle scenes or anything like that. It's like the war is ending. Um, but this is very much wartime America. So it's the politics yeah, are in the background, but yeah, you're right. Like little little moments yeah. like that are pronounced or are, are are well noted because um, you have to deal with the like the to understand what made the man special. You have to understand the world around him. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think Coppola is really looking at this period in time as you know through again through a nostalgic lens, and he talks about. Um, he talked a little bit about how his father had put in an order for a Tucker and Coppola himself owned Tuckers. And, um, you know, this is a movie kind of about uh, American exceptionalism and um, also like the power of free enterprise. And it, you know, it kind of soft pedals that a little bit. It doesn't really talk about, you know, how... It talks about the the problems with that when it's referring to Ford, Chrysler, and and General Motors, but it doesn't really talk about it from from Tucker's perspective. I mean, Tucker, I think it's it's uh, interesting when he talks about how his heroes, uh, yeah, Ford is one of them, or like Ford and Edison, two terrible people, <laughs> like, yeah, very bad men. But but for so, for what they were right like innovators because yeah. it's a funny yeah, movie it's, no, it's nostalgic yeah. again Coppola's style has consistently been one of nostalgia um, yeah and, you know the movies we've been talking about and the movie has that nostalgic looking back at the forties uh, feeling and yet it's also about a character who is a futurist you know yeah and uh, totally so it's kind of that neat retro futurism that looking looking at the future from the past. But it's uh, but it's it's also it's also like you know the idea of the dreamer, um, 
you know, which is kind of a lonely thing. There's something about his performance. There's a couple parts where Jeff Bridges, like, you know, he's hit with a no. And so much of the time, it's almost like being mentally ill. There's a little bit of like, absolutely, like, like, uh, I was going to say Gina Rollins is a woman under the influence. Like the family absolutely, is along yeah. for the ride and he seems like almost manic, um, without, yeah. without the, de- the lows of the depression. But there are moments yeah. when he, when he just says no, and you can see like it registering to him that like he may not be able to talk his way out of this or like, because yeah. So much of it is that he's a great salesman, and so he can sell you on this idea, even though everybody is telling you it's impossible. And in that way, it reminded me of the Aviator. I mean, there's a lot of corollaries to the Aviator: the the period, the the aesthetics, the fact that you know Howard Hughes even makes an appearance. We got Dean Stockwell showing up as Howard Hughes. Um, I think they were yeah. both hounded by the same senator, um, the one that's played by Lloyd Bridges. I think is fictional, or, or yeah. like you say, a composite. But I think it's the same character, basically, that Alan Alda played in aviator right um yeah you know and and uh and and so when you're when you're faced with the the reality all the time which is no there's no one no one's gonna let you do this you're never gonna pull this off which is obviously what people were telling coppola all the time especially when he's trying to invent you know the electric cinema um you know two decades early too early um it's like you have to be almost crazy to 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 deny all the reality that's that's piling up on top of you right and so there is there is that there is that kind of weird like the success of the movie almost depends on how good of a salesman he is but coppola said that the style of each picture uh is supposed to be like inherent in the concept of the picture so like it's the style changes. We've talked about this before from, from Godfather to, you know, Rumblefish or like, uh, you know, each, each movie having its own inherent style. Uh, in this one, he said the style came out of, it was like 1940s color advertising. And I think in some ways there's a scene where Jeff Bridges says, um, you know, well it's advertising, you know, you don't, you don't, um, what, what do you say? Like when you're selling soda pop, you don't say that, or when you're selling candy, you don't say that it rots your teeth. Um, and and so i think the success of the movie how how good the movie is or not or how successful it is on its own terms is like how does it work as a piece of like advertising because Mm -hmm. in some ways it does include the rotting of the teeth you know like the dream he's not totally he doesn't get his dream completely like he he wills the car into existence but he is thwarted by the he is thwarted by the big three and then he's put on trial. And even though he gets off in the end, um, it's like there's only 50 truckers in the world. You know, it depends yeah. on what you think of that. Like, yeah. there's, Hey, there's 50 yeah. truckers in the world. He, he dreamed up these 50 cars that yeah. are beautiful. And the, and the car is, let's yeah. be honest, it's a work of art. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's so it's cool. And it was innovative. He was way ahead of yeah. his time with seatbelts. I mean, yeah, especially when like the cars were actually being produced at the time, which were just these like boxy like tanks of like you know either like the luxury cars were just extremely ostentatious and and huge and almost undrivable, or just like you know these boxy tanks that had had no style and were death traps. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up that the manicness about it, um, because like this he he sort of the style of this movie is kind of uh, like he talks about how it's, it's, it's based on a promo film, a Tucker promo film. And, 
and special features on the Blu-ray. You can watch the promo film. Yeah. And it's surprising, like just how, uh, how many, like how clever and how precise Coppola was with, uh, you know, the visual look of the picture taken from this, this promo film and the style. It kind of gets forgot a little bit. Like it's a lot there in the beginning and then you see it pop up from time to time. Like you have the great, that great narrator. Yeah. Um, so maybe it is a flaw in the picture that it that he doesn't really stick with that. It's minor, if if anything. But um, but I you know that that manicness that you see in Tucker, um, he like it it you're right it 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 just kind of drives him, and and you uh you know you see people sort of reacting to it, but people just stick with him and buy him and, and keep working it's with him. It's infectious, right? And it's also like, yeah. it's so crazy yeah. it might work. It's like, he he mm-hmm. he did make the impossible happen in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. But he couldn't pull off the big thing, which was getting it mass produced. Yeah. Um, and I just think yeah. that that's the thing is that like in a commercial, uh, you know, the sun is always shining. There are no bad days, you know? Um, and yeah. And the movie can't hide from the reality that like his dream was to a large extent thwarted. Um, but, mm. but also, yeah, like some of the, some of the artifice of that idea of the promo thing, like he's got text coming across the screen and he's got like the camera spinning. Um, he's got candid angles. Mm. He's shooting from the ceiling. Like everything is gorgeous. Like the, the Storaro photography yeah. and, is out of this world. Phenomenal, gorgeous, beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, rich, warm colors and, and, and and he also has has the jingle with the uh, oh yeah, save the tiger, uh, the tiger rag, or the hold that tiger song. Yeah, <laughs> I you know I remember when I first saw it and I just like it's like why does he keep saying that? Yeah, it's like it, it it made sense the second time around. It's kind of like it's the Tucker jingle, hold that tiger, yeah. <laughs> hold that tiger. It just keeps people uh, moving forward. And apparently that was something that he did that 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 the real Tucker did sing that song, which it reminds yeah. me of my grandfather who would sing these like, you know, big noise blew in from Winnetka, you know, and he would just sing these old yeah. jingles. Um, but, yeah. but I think that, that in terms of like the look of it, if it's supposed to look like a piece of advertising, like it's successful in, mm-hmm. in that it is gorgeous. And like the light is uh, otherworldly almost like it's naturalistic yeah. in a lot of ways, but, but like the, the color of the sky is just like, it's never just like a pale blue. It's cobalt blue, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, yeah. it's so, yeah. it's so uh, gorgeous. And when there's light pouring in from the window, it's like an orange light and it's, it's never, you know, there's never, a, there's never a dull, there's not a single dull frame or, or a lazy, um, uh, like a lazy setup. It's always like, you know, it's, and, and also his transitions, right? He does all that cool stuff. Like if somebody's, mm-hmm. there's that shot where, uh, Jeff Bridges is on the telephone, like a, a bank of payphones, and he's talking to Joan Allen, and she's in the forefront. Like I don't know if it's a split diopter yeah. shot or whatever, but she's in focus in the front, he's in the back, and it's like it's not actually they uh, they they shot them all in the same location. Yeah, brilliant, right? And then all this, all the yeah. like what looks like split screen where you've got like uh, a diner on one half of the frame, and the other half of the frame is yep. the warehouse, and it's like yeah. they're shooting that live. It's just he he's bringing back yeah. some of the, some of the ideas from one from the heart and, you know, with clever transitions and in-camera effects and stuff. Um, but it don't, it doesn't have the feeling of, 
it do, it doesn't i think it, i think it could have taken that promo reel thing a little bit further cuz sometimes it feels like mm-hmm. promo reels are to this movie what news reels were to citizen kane you know but citizen kane never loses yeah. that feeling whereas i think the, yeah. tucker drops it sometimes you know but but whether yeah. i think the thing about it is that jeff i think jeff bridges makes you root you're rooting for tucker and the fact that he's got his family all around him obviously that's like coppola making movies with his family um Mm -hmm. and and he they create such a like loving household that you really want these and they're good people they're decent people tucker is a good guy um and Mm -hmm. you're really rooting for them and you want it to work but but did you i mean where do you what did you think of the movie as a whole like did did you feel like it was uh one of his better films or or is it where what does it rank well, I think you know it. It is. It is a. It is a little bit flawed. It's like. It's it's tough because like, there's so much that's likable about it, and and you know mentioning Serraro before, like Serraro's work on this picture, like he's the man for the job for one, and it's perfect. Yeah, I agree. Presentations like it's exactly the right thing at the right time, and I was shocked that he didn't get an Oscar nomination for that's criminal for yeah absolutely uh but you know it is like it is kind of a candy colored fantasy and maybe the problem with the movie is that Pope is too close to it like he too romantic about it yeah he downplays like how much of a connection there is between Tucker and himself but you know, you really just see the perspective of Tucker just trying to do his thing as this sort of, you know, noble uh, guy with a, with a, with a perfect idea and um, how, you know, the forces at work uh, just conspire against him. And there is, there's, you know, there's like missing an element of critique of, of like what it was actually like to be like, the con- the consequence of the of of that mania isn't fully examined. Yeah, like rolling, you you kind of realize that like he's not ready. Like he his he has this idea, but he hasn't thought it out all through. Yeah, and um, which I you know I think that like well he's gambling. There's he that he's yeah he's totally. gambling, and and in some ways it's like yeah. he's addicted to gambling and he's taking the family mm-hmm. fortune and there's no there's no scene where joan allen is like honey you're gonna ruin us you know what i mean which is maybe is 100 percent. that's like a cliched scene yeah. that we would see in a lot of movies but but there's stakes involved right like if you do this you're gonna lose me you know or if you do this the you know what are the kids gonna yeah. eat when we don't have any money left and you know there, there starts to be yeah. some consequence when you get to the trial period in the movie but for so much of it i think yeah. it is it's staying within that that charming veneer um, and it's not mm-hmm. like going under the surface to, to, to show us the, what the, what the flip side of that coin is because the dreamer, it's like, even if he's trying to convince everyone all the time, like there must be doubt and we don't really get let in on his doubt. And I think it's like mm-hmm. what makes the aviator maybe a more successful picture is that the aviator had the duality of, you know, his shortcomings were, 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 were manifested, you know, you know, from whether it's that scene where he like, 
he, uh, you know, obviously with Howard Hughes, you know, he ends up in like, you know, with long toenails and urine and jars in his room and all that stuff. Or the scene in the movie where the, where he's washing his hands and there's like a POV shot from the soap, which is like, makes the, so, you know, it makes him seem so powerless. Um, but you had, he had his, like his, his mental illness, um, was really like explored and, and, and manifested, um, in this debilitating way that made you feel sorry for Howard Hughes in a way that you never really feel sorry for Tucker and you never really like get mm-hmm. light. I, I think it, in some ways it's like, you don't get to look under the hood, you know, you don't get to see what's behind the salesman. Yeah. <laughs> nice metaphor. I like it, <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't disagree on any of that. And, and, and it's just like, there is a bit of a complexity missing that would have made it a, a stronger film it's a shame because so many of the elements are uh just so perfect and and so well put together and it's it's you know it's um we might be grading on a curve a little bit because we know what coppola is capable of but you know but we we we've both basically hit on you know what the problems are with this movie yeah, but I think it's also, I think it's a case where it really doesn't quite uh, this this some of the parts you know it doesn't quite work out to more yeah. than some of its parts, but it's yeah. um, but also we're I mean we're we're looking at it in two different ways. One way it's like looking at the movie by itself, and you can see where the shortcomings are. But then also watching it yeah. in in this way that we're we're doing this chronological following Coppola's career kind of way, um, there is a kind of a uh, cohesive feeling between these last three features between from, mm-hmm. from Peggy Sue to gardens of stone to Tucker. They're yeah, three absolutely. handsomely mounted pictures that are very good mm-hmm. that are, could almost be great. And greatness is slightly yeah. without, without the reach. It's a little disappointing when you find out that this was a Coppola dream project because it's like he's, he's identified with it so strongly, but, but in some ways, like I think, well, you said, like he's too close to it. He can't see his own flaws, and it's like, mm-hmm. and neither can Tucker. And if they were yeah. to acknowledge yeah. their flaws, for maybe it's like the the trapeze artist or the the tightrope walker who who yeah. never looks down because if they look down, they'd fall. Exactly. You know, and yeah. so in some ways, yeah. Coppola is just not ready to look down uh, for fear that he'll yeah. fall. And because he doesn't look down. And Tucker never looks down. We're mi- we're just missing, I think, some of the beat of like if it's a really intimate character study, um, there's a dishonesty in not acknowledging the the weaknesses. Mm-hmm. You know, because you can't fault anything else yeah. about the way the movie's made. You can't fault the look of it. Obviously, we talked about Star. Uh, and again, it's Alex and Dean Tavolaris doing the production and the art uh, yeah. design. And as always, it's just like a such a beautifully constructed um, film. Um, and the performances are great. Joan Allen. I mean, it's amazing that Joan Allen could play the wallflower in Peggy Sue got married. Cause she's just so stunning. Um, and she gives so much heart to, yeah. to the performance. Like you really, like she, she makes a lot of how we feel about Tucker. I think, um, Coppola creates a shortcut by having us look at his family, looking at him. You know, like you see the daughter, yeah, absolutely. you yep. see the way that Christian's like Christian Slater, like you say, he doesn't have that much to do, um, but he's just cool. I think young Christian Slater is cool. Uh, and he, when he looks, yeah. when he looks at his dad, you see the reverence and we feel the reverence when yeah. the daughter looks yeah. up at her dad, you know, with like 
adoringly and, and we adore him. Um, and then, and then Joan Allen's character seems so grounded that she, when she accepts Mm -hmm. him, it doesn't seem so outlandish for us to accept him, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it shows, uh, again, it shows really just a couple of strengths as a filmmaker because, um, you know, we see like, uh, through Joan Allen's, um, character, especially, uh, we see that she loves uh, Preston Tucker. We see how much that she loves him. And, and also we can tell that there is a reason for it. And Coppola doesn't need to explain that. And, and, and this is a man who, you know, has like all sorts of crazy ideas, but he's provided for his family. His yeah. family. Yeah. They never lose the house. You know, it, yeah. Like he doesn't have to, um, Coppola doesn't have to go back and explain that and explain why his family supports him. Um, doesn't have to just show that. And we see that through the performances, um, uh, you know, his, his family, Nina Shamasco as his daughter and Kristen Slater and Joan Allen, um, all, you know, really beyond reproach in, in the way that they, uh, you know, uh, look at the character of Tucker and, you know, look and listen and, and, um, obviously have them as, as, as this huge factor in their lives and just roll with it. And, and I think, yeah, that's a really strong element of, of this movie for sure. And little, uh, quirky Nemec, Parker Lewis can't lose as one of the, yeah. <laughs> one yeah. of the kids. Yeah. It was interesting that Coppola said in the commentary yeah. that they, the one thing they changed was they, they had one of his kids be much younger. Um, Right. Because, and I think it's to increase that kind of Americana, Norman Rockwell, mm-hmm. like, you know, by having little kids there too. But the, the family scenes are like, like when they all pile into the, into his tank, you know, with the turret and stuff mm-hmm. and to go for ice yeah. cream. I mean, like yeah. it, it has that, it has that infectious feeling of like, you're, you're being asked to come along for the ride. Like the way that, the way that the Martin Lando mm-hmm. character, his whole thing is rooted in the fact that he's like welcomed into this family and he becomes uncle Abe and it like takes this character who's maybe lost some of his magic or is kind yeah. of lonely. And all of a sudden he's got a family and he's, and he, I love that line in there where he says his mom told him when he's a kid, don't get close to people cause you'll catch their dreams. Um, even though what yeah. she actually said was don't get close to them, yeah. they'll catch their germs. But, and when he, and when he <laughs> says that to Jeff Bridges and he says like, I caught your dream, um, I was actually moved. Mm-hmm. Like that could have been a that could have been a a cheesy moment, but Martin Lando yeah. is just so wistful and and wonderful um, that he really sells it. And and I feel like and really like brings that kind of gravitas to yeah. to the movie, which um, it, you know it, it uh, you know smart casting, but uh, you know it, it really helps us. You know, again, it helps us sort of go along for the ride and, and, and um, you know, become supporters of what Tuck trying to do. Well, I think at the end of the day, when you're, when you're looking at this movie, that's the question is, did you catch his dream? You know, does it give mm-hmm. you that feeling? Because apparently, like, you know, that's, at least that's what they said in the special features. <laughs> like, the idea is that it's supposed to tell you that it's okay to dream. So, you know, yeah. when, you, when you finish the movie, you know, do you come away with that feeling? Like, how did you feel at the end of the movie? What did it leave you with? Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it does. Like, I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway um, from this is, is that it's, it's just a damn shame that, uh, 
you know, this, was, this dream was not, not able to be fully realized, realized in a way, but not fully realized. And you can sort of extrapolate that onto other things, other, you know, things that were ahead of their time and weren't able to stay the course. Um, I don't know if, if it has like that sort of a, of a strong enough of a personal connection, um, either to me personally or just in general, um, because I think that the movie is, um, because of the, the way that it is, it's not something that you feel like you are necessarily a part of. Yeah. It's, it's a story from the past for sure. Um, and it's even more so because of, of, of the way that it's made. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's meant to be, you know, it's meant to be like this kind of story that makes you, you know, it makes you really think about, um, uh, you know, what, what happened and the potential of what could have happened. But also I think more than anything, this is a movie that's designed to make you feel in, in like the sense of hope and, uh, what would you say? Like, uh, possibility of progress i guess um and also you know that sense of closeness to family um which of course you know is always always a big thing um with coppola and we talked about like how some of the main themes of his films are family and the, the you know the sort of maverick iconoclast uh whether it's good or bad and both of the, like those are huge in this movie, it yeah. couldn't be any more, couldn't be any bigger, really. I think, I think that it's like, for me, that personal connection that you point out, it's like, I didn't, I didn't make the full personal connection because Coppola didn't, again, didn't let us under the hood or didn't let us into Tucker's, uh, to the consequences of, Tuck, of Tucker's actions or to the behind the seat, behind the veneer, behind the, behind the salesman's smile. We didn't, we just, and so I think, I think in some ways it's like he identified with, with Tucker and was inspired by Tucker. Um, and, and I, at the end of the day, it's like, I, I, I understand that the movie's saying that, you know, it's important to dream, but I don't feel like I walked away totally inspired from the movie because of the fact that, um, I think either it just wasn't totally honest with, with the stakes and the consequences of that. And so, so, maybe not going through some of those darker things. You just, you don't get to celebrate it at the end. Like his win Mm -hmm. in the court doesn't feel like that big of a win because, you know, the Tucker motor company was dead. Right. Um, yeah. And so I feel like at the end of the day, it's like the, the difference between, uh, an an inspiring story and a cautionary tale and the movie straddles that Mm -hmm. both. And so, it's like yeah. it's not quite as it's not quite a success as an inspirational story because there's a big kind of failure at the end of it, and it doesn't qu- totally work as a cautionary tale because so much of it is being sold on optimism, and I think it's like like with advertising, it's the promise that this will improve your life, and mm-hmm. then as with so many things, you know they don't live up to the advertising, right? Like that toothpaste isn't going to give you that whiter, brighter smile. You know, it's just, yeah. it's, you know, and the candy yeah. does rot your teeth. And so I feel like maybe in the end, like for me, Tucker is kind of like, a. am on the fence. How, how successful I think the movie is, you know, cause again, mm-hmm. look at the pieces, 
all the pieces are great. The cast, Elias Kateas, uh, you know, among the people we didn't mention, um, you know, uh, you mentioned Frederick Forrest again. Um, but everybody, the cast is uniformly excellent. The, the aesthetics of the movie are gorgeous. Um, you know, it, it's, it moves quickly. It's, it's well-designed. It's all those things. And yet there's just something missing in the core. Some, some, some heart, some, maybe, maybe it took, it took Coppola, not just, um, identifying with, with him, but also like having the ability to look into his own heart of darkness and, and come up to terms with what are the consequences of being the gambler who's willing to risk your family's well-being, you know, on a dream. And yeah, you know, there is no sort of dark night of the soul moment, um, in, in the movie, which it kind of, kind of needs. And there is, you know, it shifts tone a lot. Uh, well, not a lot, but it does shift tone from time to time. The Howard Hughes sequence is, is kind of um, a, a big example of that. Yeah. And But it's also like that classic uh, screenwriter's trick of, of having, you know, a character who only appears in that particular sequence kind of um, move the story forward by, by, by saying, you know, these are the things that you don't know and I'm yeah. going to tell you all of them now. Um, it's not that it's badly done. It's a screenwriter's trick because it's effective. And Dean Stockwell is, is fantastic yeah. in that, in that brief, brief appearance. And I was just thinking like, uh, you know, just to cap it off. Um, I wonder if like, you know, the Tucker cars themselves, like one thing we'll never know is like, are, were they like the indestructible cars that still are, you know, Francis Ford Coppola and Jay Leno might be tooling around yeah. in, on you know, country road pleasure cruises, or if they were mass produced and like people bought them, like, would they be affordable for, 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 you know, the common car buyer? I know that they talk about that in the movie and that was part of the intention, but would they actually be affordable and would they be roadworthy? Like would, if, if a Tucker, if they hadn't been like babied by collectors for their entire existence, <laughs> maybe if somebody like drives a Tucker to and from work every day, would, would it actually like yeah. stand at the time? We'll never know. But yeah, that, is, that, is it the car that he dreamed or not? We don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's beautiful to look at. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it does I, look I, like I, a rocket. In person. It, yeah. I mean, it, it looks to me, those cars, they look like the, the European roadsters of the 1960s. Yeah, um, Alfa Romeos and, and Porsches and stuff like that. Like I think that um, how how far ahead they were. And that, the other thing, you know, that's, that's kind of strange is, is is I didn't quite get how they couldn't quite figure out how to put the rear engine in and make it work because it wasn't like it wasn't completely like it wasn't the first car that had ever done that. Like there were, were cars that had had done that. It, Porsches it, have the I mean, engine in the rear. Yeah, and and there were you know there were there were like I don't know when there they implemented were some that. army vehicles that had rear engines. What's that? I don't know when Porsche implemented the rear engine. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, like at that point, like how innovative that was. I know that it's like all the things that Tucker was trying to innovate were the very things yeah. that they were trying to pick apart. Like seatbelts, no, because yeah. that that yeah. suggests that driving isn't safe. Um, can't have yeah, exactly. yeah. you know you can't have yeah. your third. Uh, you know, your um, third headlight, you can't have the rear 
uh, engine all all the things that he was saying like yeah. the, the safety of it yeah the convenience of it the but they are they were beautiful and i liked at the end when you saw the the procession of the 50 cars sort of snaking around the courthouse um i was like yeah they look cool i mean it'd be i'd love to see like a uh like a jacques tati movie only with tucker cars in it you know like yeah <laughs> yeah i mean um it it i guess maybe that illustrates like the the rear engine problem it sort of illustrates the fact that uh, you know that this he wasn't ready. The, yeah. He didn't plan ahead enough. He just went full steam ahead and wasn't didn't really plan everything out to the letter, which was you know kind of his fatal flaw. But uh, yeah, there you go. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. We're very in sync with this movie, and I think it's affected us in, in similar ways. And I think we recognize the flaws similarly. Yeah. So yeah, that's that is tougher and. Uh, and uh, the movie after this, it's a big one. We return to the Godfathers for the next one for Godfather part three, yeah. also known as Coda, yeah. the death of Michael Corleone. Um, I guess yeah. we have to watch I both versions. We look, we're back to, we're back to multiple versions. versions yeah. You know, which, yeah. <laughs> I don't, cause I think there's, there's no other version of Tucker. There's just the one. Um, yeah. But we'd like to thank you guys for listening to uh, us go over uh, Tucker and hopefully you will join us again when we return for the Godfather part three and we have an email yeah, right Bjorn thanks absolutely thanks for listening and if you want to get in touch with us you can send us an email it's the filmography the podcast at gmail.com that's the filmography the podcast all one word at gmail.com excellent and uh, thank you Bjorn for joining me once again uh, it's a lot of fun yeah, man. Thanks, Reese. Uh, we'll uh, talk again for uh, the final chapter in the Godfather saga. <laughs> Until then. <laughs>